Hey, thank you to Helix for sponsoring this podcast. Adam has had his Helix mattress for almost a year now, and he's loving it. It's it's actually hard to get him up. In fact, he won't stop talking about it. You'll understand what we mean when he goes into detail. Thank you for the detail, Adam, later on the episode. But for now, we want to tell our listeners about a special deal going on. Our Sleepy Time Pal Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and... As if that's not enough, two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash Paula. That's helixsleep.com slash Paula. This is their best offer yet, and I'll bet it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I believe we have agreed that we are not doing a cold yeah, open. Yeah, I, I don't we, think we even need to belabor it anymore. Just like yeah, our, our listeners no longer expect it. Right. We don't do it anymore. I did, though, you guys want to start with a grabber. So I don't know how well you can see this, but I have made a, a Rube yeah. Goldberg device right here in my office slash bedroom. Can, can you see it? Yeah. Are those uh, live chickens? Oh, that's not part of that. Um, okay. uh, <laughs> yes, they are live chickens, but no, it is not part of my Rube Goldberg uh, um, device. All right, so I'm going to start with this this 10 pound lead ball. Uh, okay. See, it it goes wait, it goes down this slide. Al- already, I see a problem. It's going to drop <laughs> onto this seesaw. There it goes. Now that makes this 30 pound weight fall and spring it up to this tube. See, there it goes. It'll hit this bicycle horn, huh? It'll drop and hit these spoons that hit these glasses with varying levels of water. This is delightful. And thank you. And then it just shoots out this opening. Ah! Oh! oh, Jesus. Ah, <laughs> oh, fuck. Why did you set it up that way? Because I wanted to be able to, ah. Oh. That hit you, you right in what? the head. Right in the side of my head. Oh, my yeah. God. Why Why do we have to have a grabber? Can't people just listen to the show? Can't they just enjoy a delightful treehouse full of information? And co- I think I'm bleeding. Uh, um, yeah, you Wendell, are. give me some ice. <laughs> Fuck these listeners. It's just, this is too no, hard. It's, and, it's not the and, listeners. And, and, you, you, you bring this on yourself. What do we make? Like a penny per hour? That That's not, it. Not no much. more. No more cold opens. That is it. Ugh. Wow. Wow. Have you thought about a grabber that doesn't cause you bodily harm? I'm sorry, I can't hear out of this ear. Yeah, there's too much blood. Yeah, well, I just got hit in the head by a 10-pound lead ball. And and why lead? That seems unwise. I was just, I didn't want to use a chicken. That's fair. You know, if you keep talking about this, we're going to have another really long cold opening. What are you we're talking about? We're not doing... <laughs> we di- I, just, I just did the grabber. That's yeah, it. It's a grabber. We don't... It's yeah, grabber. It's, a, it's, a, it's a grabber. It's very and different than It's a grabber. Open. We've grabbed. Let's can move somebody, on. Can, yeah. 
<laughs> can somebody call 911 and I, I can. tell them my address? They, oh. they probably have your address at this point, Paula. No, because a lot of my injuries I've taken care of myself. I mean, even this. <laughs> Do you see how my ear is hanging off? I can stitch that up on my own. Yeah, but now you also have lead poisoning to think about. <laughs> I don't think lead poisoning. <laughs> is lead poisoning really? For, like, could you get lead poisoning from a 10-pound lead ball, ball shooting out into the side of your head? And getting into your blood? Well, we'll find out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, let's just sit quietly and wait. Is that a grabber? That's um, a grabber. The sitting and okay, You know, listen, I say we start because I think I only have about 30 minutes of consciousness left in me. So, <laughs> And that's about as much time as it's going to take the ambulance. So let's do it. Coming to you live from our houses in Los Angeles, California, it's Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone, your comedy field guide to life. Tonight... I hope you're sitting down because I need to tell you the Supreme Court sometimes makes mistakes. No, no, it's true, like maybe even like recently. But to understand about some recent mistakes involving motherhood, we're going to have to go back to the mother of all supreme boners, Plessy versus Ferguson. Returning champion Peter Irons is here to tell us about the justice's most famous injustice. And speaking about injustice, what about the injustice of a great musician not being recognized in her own time? Well, that gets rectified tonight because it's Mailbag <laughs> Lockenspiel Edition. <laughs> I'm Adam Felber. This show's eternal friend of the court, filing brief after brief in the hopes of maintaining a sane and sober line of reasoning. And now, please welcome the woman who sincerely hopes this court is out of order just so she won't get the parking ticket. It's Paula Poundstone! Hey, you welcome, guys, Paula. who I haven't spoken to at all yet. Um, and, and welcome back to our house band, Jay Clannon on the flugelhorn and trumpet. This is Jay's, wait for it, fifth appearance as house band on our show, you can check out Jay's recordings and other projects at roadrunnerproductions.net. What's new, Paula Poundstone? <laughs> well, I'll tell you something. Here's a little tale. Here's a little Twitter tale. You know, I spend much more time than I should on Twitter. And I know that it's awful in most ways. But the other day, I, I was watching MSNBC and I watched an interview with Katie Porter, um, who I really like. She's a represent California representative. She does, I don't know, Irvine and I don't know where else, but certainly Irvine. You know, she's the woman, you guys, with the whiteboard who, you know, did the great job uh, showing Jamie Dimon that his employees can't live on what he pays them. So I heard her interview and she was terrific in the interview. And so I just typed a happy thought into my, com <laughs> into my computer. I uh -oh. just typed... Wouldn't Katie Porter make a great president? <laughs> and a, a lot of people said, oh, yeah, I've always thought that. And, yeah, she's so wonderful. And, oh, my gosh, I love her whiteboard. And she's so, you know, reasonable and blah, 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 blah. A lot of people did say yes. But a lot of people also, a smaller percentage, but a lot, were like, one woman wrote, I am so disappointed in you. And what they kept <laughs> saying was, 
that I was overlooking Vice President Harris and I was overlooking uh, President Biden, which wasn't what I was doing at all. I wasn't thinking today or tomorrow. I mean, what if I saw Joe Biden, you know, 40 years ago and wrote, boy, Joe Biden might make a terrific president, right? And I think Joe Biden is making a fantastic president. I don't think there's anybody else for this time that could have... I think he's done what he's done in an unimaginably difficult circumstance, and he's Incredibly done it. Incredibly patient. Oh, my gosh. I, co I could not have done. I mean, even to just debate Donald Trump and only say, would you shut up, man, one time is, <laughs> is just amazing. Amazing. He's a character-filled guy. I think he really has the country. You get the idea. So I could have said that. 40 years ago, and I would have been correct. And I have no idea how long Katie Porter intends to be in politics or if she even wants to be president. It was more just me saying, boy, I do love that Katie Porter. Yeah. Well. And that's where it ended. Uh, no, no, it no? isn't. And I don't usually respond to people on Twitter when they're kind of, when they're very antagonistic and kind of mean. But I uh, know literally somebody, somebody posted a gift that said... <laughs> You are a bigot. <laughs> I was just like, wait, wait, what? wait. And then I thought, okay, the next day it'll call. And I went to the trouble of directly writing like a couple of people going, no, you know what? That's not what I meant. And then they would write it again. It kept multiplying. Like it was like, okay, remember in Sleeper when he's the, the butler and he tries to make the pudding and then the pudding chases him around the kitchen. It was like that. Like, so the following day I thought, well, okay, it's over with now. I swear to God, the following day there was another whole stack of these with just people. How could you? What do you mean? You don't like Joe Biden? What, what, what do you, why would you be against Kamala Harris? And none of those things are true. I said none of them. But it was like every time I peeked my head up, you know, over... Just slightly above the table, like a whole ton of muffins got whipped at my head. That's amazing. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And I, I am of the belief that, you know, the old Indian adage, uh, walk a mile in another man's shoes kind of thing. That's impossible. One cannot do that. Not with my feet. Uh, well, exactly. Oh, my God. You can't walk a mile in your <laughs> shoes. Uh, uh, Adam has huge feet. Um, but I do believe that it's actually impossible for us to see stuff entirely from someone else's perspective because we have our own and it's best of intentions. Uh, you still can't exactly get what it's like to be somebody else. And therefore, am I bigoted? Hmm. Uh, probably in some ways. Yeah, probably. Um, not not by design, but probably. But this was just like, you are a bigot. And I'm like, all this from, wouldn't Katie Porter make a wonderful president? So I'll tell you something. I wrote to Katie Porter and I read her the riot act. She deserves it. I said, how fucking dare you yeah. be admirable in any way? So let's hope she just gets out of politics altogether or my ass is grass. But it literally went on for days. <laughs> this one guy kept writing back and writing back. And, and it's funny because I did that thing where you type something out and then you erase it. And yeah. then you type like, so I typed out my, the first thing I typed out was, don't you have anything else to do? And then I thought, okay, you know what? That's not going to be ha helpful in any way. I undid it and went, and then I sort of modified and modified and modified and I finally settled on thank you. <laughs> <laughs>
That's about the best you can do in that situation. Yeah, yeah. it was a big, it was a big Twitter waste of time. I, I just, I, yeah, you, you know, when people are intransigent like that, just unwilling, you know, the people that are just waiting around, hoping yeah. to be outraged. Absolutely. You, you know, they live on Twitter. They never turn Twitter off. No, that's their, that's their thing. Yeah, I guess. Uh, um, let's pause a minute. <laughs> what, what happened? Was your wife? That was, was your um, wife crying uh, at the door again? That was my <laughs> wife crying at the door. Oh my gosh! No, that was the uh, caregiver for my in-laws saying goodbye. Oh, oh. I, 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 I thought it was your wife crying at the door, and I just think you should do something about that. You know, it reminds me of the Picasso situation. Did I ever right. tell you about this before? That he he no. did the didn't he do he did a painting called Weeping Women, and yeah, and. It, and I just think, you know, he had so many mistresses and wives and and in his timeline, uh, you know, in the timeline of his life, it, it'll, it'll say like, you know, he got married on this day and on, on, you know, a few days later, maybe a week or two later, he took a mistress over at such and such. And you would just think at some point uh, when he's painting these women, because he did, he painted them. You'd yeah. think at some point while they're crying and he's painting, at some point he would put the brush down and go, honey, what's wrong? Uh, but I do think that any time, and Adam, you, uh, not that you need my permission, I am not the boss of you, but any time yeah. we're taping and your wife is crying on the other side of the door, please feel free to stop and go see That has wrong. never, ever happened, though. <laughs> ever. <laughs> not once. I remember once. that it did. <laughs> okay. You know what I'm going to do? I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to say this, Paula. Thank go you. Go ahead. <laughs> 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 and now we're going to move on. Let's uh let's touch on our bookie bookie book club which is poised to return. Now, if you remember, we reached out to our great good friend the librarian at the Studio City Public Library and she got everybody there to come up with some book recommendations and now we have five really ripping recommendations for the next novel <laughs> you know, for our if, bookie if bookie book club. If they're all your books, I'm going to be pissed. They are all my books. Oh, what a funny coincidence. One of them is the novelization of my new podcast, Dad Bandland. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, it isn't. And in fact, in fact, to find out uh, what the books are and give a capsule description, and because Bonnie Burns needs to know how many pages she's not going to read this time, uh, there's also a page count. Let's have Tony Anita Hall step up to the microphone and read us these five recommendations. Why did Bonnie insist on knowing how many pages? When I was a kid and I would go to the library or a bookstore and I would see basically a cover that I liked. That that was how I chose books. I would see yeah. a cover that I liked and I would take it off the shelf and then I would quickly look in and see how big the print was. That yeah. was always important to me. So I think this is a very, very similar I chose longer books because I liked them. Oh, Jesus. We've talked before about how many pages a book has and how long it would take us to read it. It would take <laughs> probably a shorter time to read if you read it. I'll read it if it's not below my intellectual level. And oh! I know I do. Oh! 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 Jesus, that is oh a swipe at everybody else here. Oh, my God. Oh my God! I can hardly believe. Yeah. Little snooty tooty yeah. over there said that. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> All right, uh, Tony, read I'm us about ready. these books. Okay, so the first one we have is Home Going by Yah Jesse. It's 305 pages. Okay, no next. 
Okay. <laughs> Homegoing is a story about two half-sisters leading two completely different lives in 18th century Ghana. Extraordinary for its exquisite language, its implacable sorrow, and for its monumental portrait of the forces that shape families and nations. Doesn't sound like an intellectual low bar. No, it doesn't. However, implacable sorrow is a is a little bit of a red flag for me. That doesn't sound like a lot of fun at all. Adam, you know how you have that sign on the door at your house, implacable sorrow on the other side? I sh- yes. Yeah. Wait, no, was- I don't have such a sign. <laughs> <laughs> That's not Told Tony. You. Read on. Told you. <laughs> Our next choice is the Hacienda by Isabel Cañas. 345 pages. Are Mexi- you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> How big is the print? <laughs> uh, this is Mexican Gothic meets Rebecca in this debut supernatural suspense novel sent the aftermath of the Mexican War of Independence about a remote house, a sinister haunting, and the woman pulled into their clutches. I hate sci-fi. Oh, Bonnie hates sci-fi. Would you feel better if we dug up Ray Bradbury so you could slap him? <laughs> <laughs> let's okay, let's build Tommy a time machine so she can kill Ray Bradbury's parents. Tony, why don't we continue with the next entry? Yeah, this is If Bill Street Could Talk by James Baldwin, 197 oh. pages. Now you're talking. <laughs> in this honest and stunning novel, Baldwin has given America a moving story of love in the face of injustice. In a love story that evokes the blues, where passion and sadness are inevitably intertwined, Baldwin creates two characters so alive and profoundly realized that they are unforgettably ingrained in the American psyche. Wow. I like James Baldwin. <laughs> I love Memphis. That's a, that's a leading candidate. I saw this this movie, and I always hate it when the movie characters are what I imagine while I'm reading. The movie was good. Some of the performances were terrific. Fair. We'll see. Okay, Tony. Suddenly, this this side Let's- of my head where this ten pound lead ball hit me, yeah, <laughs> doesn't hurt as much as the front of my head just from talking to you guys. Yeah, that's how I feel on every show. Hey, Tony, let's get let's get these next couple. (laughs) A map for the missing by Belinda Hoijin Tang, three hundred ninety-two pages. Whoa! A sensitively rendered portrait of a man desperately searching for his father and for reconnection to the past and people he once knew and loved. A map for the missing explores the cost of choosing your own path, whether what's left behind can ever be retrieved, and whether it is possible to forgive the wounds we inevitably inflict on each other. All right, so far that's my choice. Keep going. Mine too. Bonnie, it has 392 pages. I, I, I know, but it seemed good. It sounded Yeah, but good. you're not going to read it. I, 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 I can't believe that we're, that that's legal. We don't know where and when it takes place and what this guy does. And yet you guys are Doesn't picking matter. it. I didn't pick it. We're, we're presenting it to the listeners. All right. What's the last one, Tony? The Heart's Invisible Furies by John Boyne. 580 pages. That's not happening. (laughs) (laughs) The affecting story of Cyril Avery, born out of wedlock to an Irish teenager after World War II and adopted by a rich but cockeyed Dublin couple, Cyril swirls in eddies through life, trying to find out who he really is. Oh, no. The 
That's my choice. The who he really is <laughs> thing, Bunny, is right up your alley with no. the, the real, the true self and the false self. Oh, you're um, gonna love. Can, can I can I ask Bonnie and and Paula in particular a question? What's the difference between this book and the previous one? Oh, either one's good with me. They could be descriptions of the exact same book. No, they're not. They're both some dude who's desperately searching for his family, his real family. Both of them. These could be the same books. Yeah, well, one's 500 pages. <laughs> There's the difference. 192. There's the difference. All right, so there they are. And uh, the listeners can weigh in. Is that correct? Yes, the listeners should go to our Facebook page or any of our social medias and weigh in. Let us know what you think should be the next bookie, bookie, book club selection. And if you don't like the social medias, send us an email at nobodylistenstopaulapoundstone at gmail.com and we will take your choice into consideration. And now, Paula, with that, do you have a vocabulary word for this week? I do, Adam. I have a word. It's asperity. It's a noun that means harshness of tone or manner. Here, I'll use it in a sentence. Instead of just availing themselves of an exchange of ideas on Twitter, many people feel the need to respond to one another with asperity. It's Ooh, a great that's, word. That's a great word. Let me just say this, Paula, that if you yourself can use the word asperity sometime during this show in a sentence, you will win the right to send share a dollar. Good luck, Paula Poundstone. Very, Please go I'm on. Very excited. Very excited. Well, it's a great word. Asperity. <laughs> asperity. Asperity. Asper- I'm trying to get it in my head because I really want to send share a dollar. Asperity. Asper. What's with all the asperity? Can't we just talk? I wish I could remember it. Let's put it into the vocabulary song. Here we go. This week's word is asperity. It's a noun that means harshness of tone or manner. I'm sorry I can't get together today because I don't have you down in my planner. Last week's word was odium. It's a noun that means general or widespread hatred or disgust. The orange-lying insurrectionist narcissist thinks it matters if his hair is must. The week before that, the word was ignominy. It's a noun that means deep personal humiliation and disgrace. I had a big serving when I lost the running race to Adam and Julie and Tony and probably Bonnie if she had done it. (laughs) Going back before that, the word was bellicose. It's an adjective that means aggressive and ready to fight. If I don't get my way, I might even bite. Let's never forget Gallimuffry, which I pronounced wrong until nobody James Hyder corrected me. It's a noun that means confused jumbler medley of things. Hodgepodge, who's podge? Hodgepodge. Adam doesn't think my song is replicable. Replicable, replicable. But I do, I do, I do, I do. There it is, ladies and gentlemen. Very nice, very nice. Uh, Tony, I'm so glad you're back, by the way, Tony Anita Hull. Tony Anita Hull, who warns that if you haven't started stringing your popcorn Christmas tree garland yet, (laughs) it may be too late already. If you can, without Googling, tell me which of these famous movie quotes, A through D, still makes sense with one word replaced by horloge. 
a former nobody listens to Paula Poundstone vocabulary word, we will give literally dollars worth of advertising to Solid State Books at 600F H Street Northeast in Washington, D.C. However, if, and I'd rather have Trump himself do my toenails at Mar-a-Lago than even think about it, but if you cannot tell me which of A through D movie quotes still make sense when I've replaced a word with horloge, a former nobody listens to Paula Poundstone vocabulary word, we will not be able to give literally dollars worth of advertising to Solid State Books at 600F H Street Northeast in Washington, D.C. Tony Anita Hull, are you ready? Yes. Remember, I have replaced a word in each of these famous movie quotes with the word horloge. In which one does it still make sense? A. Mayella Yule in To Kill a Mockingbird says, A horloge. B. Dumbledore in Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone says, It does not do to dwell on horologes and forget to live. C. Tommy in Goodfellas says, I mean funny like I'm a horologe? I amuse you? Or D. Bob Wallace in White Christmas says, synchronize your horologes then for Operation Waverly. I have no idea, but I'll choose C. <laughs> Adam, does that take that? That's wrong. What? By Why'd Adam you take space? A- <laughs> <laughs> Pay no attention to Adam's face. <laughs> I'm sorry, <laughs> but, but the answer is D, because oh. horologe is a noun that means timepiece, as oh. a clock, watch, or hourglass. So Bob Wallace actually said, synchronize your watches for Operation Waverly. And our deepest feeling. apologies to Solid State Books at 600 F. H Street, Northeast in Washington, D.C., but we will not be able to give literally dollars worth of advertising to Solid State Books <laughs> at 600F H Street, Northeast uh, in Washington, D.C., and we will not be able to recommend that if listeners are in the Washington, D.C. area, they stop by Solid State Books at 600F H Street, Northeast in Washington, D.C., and buy some banned books. Wow. Sorry, Tony. But if it's any if it's any help, uh, the team was let down last week as well. <laughs> <laughs> I do feel better. <laughs> you know, one George Wallace once said, "Segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever." Whereas the other George Wallace once tweeted, "I hereby pardon the Hamburglar for his crimes. His name has been dragged through the mud long enough. Only now have we begun to truly understand hamburger addiction and whatnot." I know whose side I'm on. <laughs> we'll discuss it all when we come back. I love George Wallace's Twitter so much. I was just about to say I love George Wallace. And then I thought some asshole is going to go, <laughs> I'm so disappointed in you. <laughs> Adam, you know I have a house full of cats and a couple of big dogs. So I have this one cat who every night likes to stand in the hallway and yowl. And he has kind of a, a little bit like me, because uh, of allergies, 
I don't know why he has it, but his name is Theo and he has a really grovelly voice. So he'll, it's, it's hard to describe it. I can't do a good impression, um, but it's a little dusty, gravelly voice. Okay. So earlier I was laying on the living room floor because I'm exhausted and I'm wearing a nylon fiber filled vest. As I'm laying on the floor, Theo shoves his head through one sleeve of the vest and crawls up and is now stuck inside in between my back and the vest and is yowling <laughs> because he can't get out. And then finally his head comes out the other sleeve and he goes out. What's not to love? That's what I say. <laughs> what is not to love? Which brings me to this. Today's episode is sponsored by the ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program. Your pet is part of your family. You know that already. And you want the best for them no matter what. But vet bills can really add up. Go ahead, ask me. That's why you should check out pet insurance. And with ASPCA Pet Health Insurance, you can focus on the care your pet deserves and cover what matters most. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program offers customizable accident and illness plans, making it easier for pet parents like you to help your pet get the care they may need. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program has been around for over 18 years, and they've helped more than 600,000 pets during that time. That's a lot of pets. Sure they allow you to customize your plan, helping ensure that your pet's plan is as unique as they are. Because vet bills can really add up, especially when you're least expecting it. It's simple. Use their app to submit a claim and you'll receive reimbursement for eligible vet bills directly into your bank account. To explore coverage, visit ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash Paula. That's ASPCA. We spell that A-S-P-C-A. PetInsurance.com slash Paula. This is a paid advertisement. Insurance is underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produced by PTZ Insurance Agency Limited. The ASPCA is not an insurer and is not engaged in the business of insurance. And if you're going to do it anyway, use our code. Hey, Paula. You know, every once in a while we get a new advertiser that I get super excited about. And I have to say, just because of the circumstances of my life right now, I'm really excited about our new advertiser, Quince of Quince.com, the clothing provider. Not to be mistaken for Quince from Midsummer Night's Dream. And let me just say this, and maybe it's not important to an advertisement, but when I was in the fourth grade, our class put on a production of a midsummer night's dream okay and i played i played peter quince there there's the connection one of the mechanicals that's a great connection also yes has nothing to do with this which is that um quince is an online clothing store and as you know paula i've uh, i've lost a little weight lately oh right 75 pounds yeah so i literally have no clothes that are in my size until i just ordered some stuff at quince and i figured like here's a chance for me to create a new look for myself a whole new image. And how's it going? Not bad. I mean, the clothes are fantastic. I know that you ordered some too. What I got is I got yes. the Comfort Stretch Traveler five pocket pants. And I got oh. the, um, oh, it's so, and I got the 100% European linen shirt and it looks breezy and it fits beautifully. And these are like premium pieces of clothing that are selling for like, you know, $30 a piece or starting at $30 at quince.com. It's awesome. I look good. I ordered the brushed lounge jogger Ooh. and you know i put them on when i came back from new york 
I pulled them on and I, I swear to you, okay, this is not scientific because I was tired already. Right. But they were so soft <laughs> and, and so comfortable that honestly, like right as I got them up to my waist, I, I, I think my eyes closed. They're so, it's a softness. It's a kind of softness that I don't think I've ever experienced in a garment, honestly. You know, my uh, drawstring European linen trousers are a little bit like that, too. Like, so comfortable that I just want to hang out with myself. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they're European. Keep that in mind. They're oh, European. they are so European. And you can get those kind of, you can get washable silk tops. You can get uh, 14 karat gold jewelry and like all these accessories. When sells a lineup of timeless pieces that keep their customers looking effortlessly chic year after year. I'm not certain that I look chic, but certainly if I did, it's not going to take a lot of effort. I now look chic and I feel pretty great. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabric. It's all good as far as I can see. Is it my imagination or do they cut out the middleman? They cut out the middleman, Paula Poundstone. I love it when they cut out the middleman. That's the thing, they cut out the middleman. <laughs> That's fantastic. So be like me and Paula. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash nobody for free shipping on your order and a 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash nobody to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash nobody. And honestly, I look fantastic. Paula, you won't be able to keep your hands off me. Oh, I can't wait. And don't <laughs> think that if you had to return something, don't think you're sending it to a middleman because they cut out the middleman. They man. cut out the middleman. That's quince.com slash nobody. And if you're going to do it anyway, use our code. Hey, Paula, it's been almost a year now since I got my Helix mattress. And as you remember, there was some drama surrounding Helix mattresses. Because oh, when oh my Helix gosh. first sponsored us, Bonnie took the mattress and yeah. she's been loving it. But finally, I got my chance to get a Helix mattress and I sleep so well. I mean, the family bed is where we all gather. We watch movies in, in our room occasionally and everybody just piles on it and it it's comfy. And yet when one person hops on, the other half of the mattress doesn't fly up. I'm a fan. Well, you know, Adam, everybody is unique and everyone sleeps differently. That's why Helix has several different mattress models to choose from, each designed for specific sleep positions and feel preferences. Models with memory foam layers to provide optimal pressure relief if you sleep on your side. Models with a more responsive foam to cradle your body for essential support in stomach and back sleeping positions plus enhanced cooling features to keep you from overheating at night. And if your spine needs some extra TLC, they got you. Every Helix mattress has a hybrid design combining individually wrapped steel coils in the base with premium foam layers on top. It is the perfect combination of comfort and support. I agree with that last bit. I don't get all the technical stuff about the mattress, but it is soft and supportive. Helix offers 20 unique mattresses, the award-winning Lux, which I got, and ultra-premium Elite Collections, the Helix Plus, a mattress designed for big and tall sleepers, and the Helix Kids mattress designed for growing bodies and endorsed by child sleep experts, and my daughter now wants one. So, how will you know which Helix mattress works best for you and your body? You go to their website, take the Helix Sleep Quiz, and you find your perfect mattress batch in under two minutes. You know, when you said you can't follow all the technical stuff, it's really not that technical. You know, uh, no matter what way you sleep, they have a mattress that will support and comfort you. 
How hard is that? Uh, you know, when you say it that way, it seems a lot simpler. I take it back. That's my boner. And your personalized mattress is shipped straight to your door, free of charge. And Helix knows there's no better way to test out a new mattress than by sleeping on it in your own home. That's why they offer a 100-night trial and a 10- to 15-year warranty to try out your new Helix mattress. Well, I like that there's a warranty, but they can pry that mattress from my cold, dead hands. I took the sleep quiz. I was matched with the Helix Midnight Lux. I got the Lux. And I love it. It is such an upgrade from my old mattress. You know, I think Bonnie got the Midnight Lux. She did. Too. Yeah. You're not here. <laughs> <laughs> Don't want to take Adam's word for it? Well, you got Bonnie's word. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It's even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Your Sleepy Time Pal Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. That's a lot, and it's already not that expensive a mattress. Go to helixsleep.com slash Paula. That's helixsleep.com slash Paula. This is their best offer yet. It's fantastic. It won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Well, not right now. And if you're going to get it anyway, use our code. On this day in unremarkable history, Abraham Lincoln said, Are those new gloves, dearest? Very pretty. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, house band Jay Clannon. That's sounding great. And uh, Paula, you, you look pensive. Why do I have a pensive Paula on my hands? Adam, did I ever tell you how I came to start paying attention to the news? I don't know if you have. We have talked a lot over these 300 or whatever episodes, but no. Well, one summer in my young adult life, I lived with Timothy Leary and his wife for a couple of weeks. Well, maybe it lasted long. No, I think I think I was supposed to be there a couple of weeks and I outstayed my welcome. I, I was staying in the guest room And when I was home, not on the road, I would go to the improv in Hollywood every night. And before I left, I would take a nap. So I would be sleeping at like, I don't know, six o'clock, I guess. And Tim Leary would come into my bedroom or he'd send his stepson in. And they'd knock on the door and they'd come in and they'd go, "Uh, the news is on, like very excitedly. And I'd say, oh, okay, thanks. And then I'd fall back asleep. And this took place several times before I finally went, Tim, why, why do you do that? <laughs> why do you come in and say the news is on? <laughs> and he said, he said, you mean you don't watch the news? And I said, no, I don't. And I said, I can't watch the news because I haven't watched the news before. And so if I start now... I don't know what's going It's like I'm coming in in the middle of a movie. And he said, and keep in mind, this is before things like TiVo and stuff like that. You couldn't pause. Sure. Uh, he said, you come watch the news with us and any questions you have, we'll answer. And by the way, one of my questions was, what's South Africa? Um, wow. That's, that's how, how long ago it was. Anyways, he was a very intelligent man. 
uh, he had a different take on things, I think, but he was very well apprised of what was going on in the world. Anyways, the problem for me often remains that while discussing current events, there's a reference to the past. And honestly, I also chose to be a shit student growing up. So my Mm -hmm. knowledge of history is spotty at best. Here's an example. Often in a discussion of the Supreme Court and civil rights, people will cite Plessy or Plessy versus Ferguson. And I honestly have sometimes pretended to know what they're talking about, but I really don't. I'm so far behind in history, and it just keeps charging forward. I feel like everyone knows but me. It's like saying I don't know how to perform oral sex. I mean, I get the ta-da part, but... (laughs) It's a performance, but uh, who can I talk to that's expert enough that I won't just think I'm an... Excuse me. Who can I talk to that's expert enough that won't just think I'm an ignorant freak? What's what's Plessy? I, I, I wish I knew someone who could explain it to me. Someone smart, but also sensitive. Someone with a deep knowledge of the Supreme Court, and maybe someone who has spent their life fighting for civil rights. I wish there was someone like that, but you know what? (sighs) There isn't. I'm just not that lucky. There's nobody I'm ever going to meet. It's not who I am. Well, Paula, I'm sorry to say it's a tall order, so, you know. Yeah. Wait a minute. It just struck me. This is crazy, but the guest that we have scheduled for today, who is here right now, is the exact smart and sensitive expert that you seek. No. American political activist, civil rights attorney, legal st- scholar, professor emeritus of political science at University of California, San Diego, and returning champion here on Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone. Let's hear it for our friend Peter Irons. Yay! Yay! Peter, welcome. Thank you so much, Adam. And Paula, that was a great story. <laughs> It's sadly a true story. Um, All right, Peter, I have heard uh, of the Supreme Court case, Plessy versus Ferguson, referred to many times, but I never knew what it was until I listened to your book, A People's History of the Supreme Court. And I I have some memory problems, so not only do I want to make sure our listeners know about it, but frankly, I could also use it explained over and over again to me. Um, I gather that Mr. Plessy was arrested on a train on June 7th, 1892. How did that come about? What was the status of black people in our country at the time? Well, that last question, of course, is a huge question. The status of black people in our country at that time, the uh, last decade of the 19th century. And to be honest, uh, it was terrible, the status of black people. Because even though the Union won the Civil War, the South won the redemption. That is, they replaced the uh, Reconstruction governments with all white governments, and they literally uh, turned the newly freed slaves back into bondage through a whole variety of ways, contract labor, uh, peonage laws, uh, vagabond laws, so that uh, black people really weren't that much better off uh, at the end of the century than they had been uh, before the war. And how did it come about that Mr. Plessy was arrested on the train? Well, that was a, that's also a fascinating question because uh, the most of what's been written about the Plessy case, 
says that Homer Plessy was an octoroon. That is, he was a black person, but with one black ancestor, great grandparent, and seven white ones. So that would make him one eighth black. And there were a lot of people in New Orleans at that time um, who were passing for white because they, in fact, had a majority of white ancestors. Uh, this goes back to the days when the French colonized Louisiana, and there was a lot of intermingling. Um, and New Orleans is still one of the most racially diverse uh, cities in the country, what's left of it. Uh, and, and so these people were known as Creoles, a uh, word meaning original, uh, but they had come over here, many of them, um, after the revolution in Haiti in 1804, uh, that was, had been a French colony, and they came to New Orleans. Um, many of them became very prosperous, uh, well-respected, and they weren't considered uh, to be really black people, uh, but they were also not considered white. Now, under Louisiana law, there was no in-between. You were either white or black, and they adopted what's called the one-drop rule. That is, if there was one drop, you know, symbolically, mm -hmm. of black blood in your veins, no matter how far back it goes and how small a drop it is, you were designated as black. And so as the end of Reconstruction was followed by redemption, uh, the states in the South started passing Jim Crow laws. Now, these were laws that were designed to separate the races in virtually every aspect of life. Uh, of course, schools were segregated, restaurants, movie theaters, uh, public transportation, anywhere that somebody would go was segregated. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the Creoles in New Orleans presented this. Uh, and so they set up a committee in 1890. The Louisiana legislature passed what was called the Separate Cars Act. And this required that every railroad, uh, every train that goes out from the station must have at least one coach designated for black people and however many white coaches there were as well. So the Creoles decided to challenge this, not on the grounds that they were not black, but on the grounds that they, in fact, uh, there was so little distinction between them and so-called pure white people that it made no sense to segregate them. So they put up a committee uh, called the Citizens Committee to uh, oppose the Separate Cars Act, and they hired a lawyer who turned out to be one of the most flamboyant lawyers in American history, a man named Albion Tourguet, who had been a judge. He was a white lawyer from New York, what they called carpetbaggers during Reconstruction, went down to North Carolina, helped them draft a constitution, a, a very progressive constitution, in fact. Wait, can I stop you just for a second? I Because that brings up another question I've uh, uh, always had. What's a carpetbagger? A carpetbagger is one of the white people, well-meaning uh, in many cases, uh, who went down to the South uh, to work in the Reconstruction governments. And since there were Black uh, delegates in every state legislature after slavery ended, 
uh, in a couple of states, they were in the majority. In fact, South Carolina and Louisiana, where blacks were a majority in the legislative bodies, governors and U.S. senators and representatives. So Torgay was one of those people who gave gave their support and their skills. But after Reconstruction ended, he returned to New York. And uh, so he was recruited to uh, represent Homer Plessy. All right. So Homer Plessy knew what he was doing. Am I right? He was prepared to be a part of this fight. You're right. Um, Actually, Homer Plessy was good friends with people, the leaders of the Citizens Committee. Um, He was a shoemaker by trade, but um, he was very active in the committee. And he volunteered uh, partly because he really could and did pass as white. That is looking at him as his lawyer said to the Supreme Court, there is no distinction of color here. So he was passed as white. He bought a first class ticket on the train to go around Lake Ponchart train uh, to a town called Covington. And uh, the first class tickets, of course, were reserved for white people. He got on the coach, handed the conductor his ticket and took a seat. And the conductor said, uh, I'm sorry, you'll have to leave and go to the coach behind. Uh, And Plessy said, how come? And he said, because you're not of the white race. And Plessy said, I'm not going to move. And then at that point, and this was all sort of choreographed, Mm -hmm. um, a private detective got on the train, had been hired by the citizen committee and affected a citizen's arrest of Plessy for violating the law. He was taken to the municipal court and promptly bonded out. And then later, a trial before Judge John Ferguson. Ah, hence the Ferguson in Plessy v. Ferguson. So they went to court. By the way, I can't hear citizen's arrest and not smirk uh, because of uh, Barney Fife from Andy Griffith. Um, so, so what did they argue uh, when they went to court? What was the argument? That's a great question, Paula, because the argument they made defending the Separate Cars Act was flat out blatantly racist. In fact, the lawyer for the for the city, a man named Lionel James, told Judge Ferguson the main reason for this separation of black and white people on the train was, and I'm quoting his words, the foul odors of blacks. Oh. That was it. And that is probably one of the most pernicious stereotypes ever invented. Now, we're talking about 1892. There are probably a lot of people in New Orleans who don't have showers, who don't have air conditioning, and uh, who work all day in the hot sun and maybe sweat a bit. Uh, But that's true of white people as well. So the, the whole basis of this argument is based on a racial stereotype. It has nothing to do with what a railroad car is supposed to be which is to take passengers, whoever they are, whoever's paid for their ticket, to their destination. So they had the first case, and and what happened there? And then how did it get to the Supreme Court? Well, it got to the Supreme Court in sort of an odd kind of way, um, because uh, after Judge Ferguson made his decision, and it was appealed to the Louisiana Supreme Court, which upheld him, and then Plessy's lawyers filed a suit in federal court to overturn that state decision. And this was a really bad choice because 
all of the justices of the Supreme Court at that time uh, were, first of all, white, of course. First, secondly, they were all men. They were all lawyers. They were all fairly wealthy, some of them quite wealthy. And they represented a, an elite class, uh, which really had no particular desire to do anything uh, for minorities. And uh, in, in fact, to say that they were racist is that they were not like the Klan, riding around in robes and hoods and terrorizing and lynching people, but they were genteel racists. They really felt that black people were not equal to white people. And so the case actually got to the Supreme Court three years after the first trial. That's because the court at that time had to take every case that was appealed to it and issue a decision of some kind. And uh, there were 390 some cases on the docket that year. And Plessy's was not considered a particularly important case. It's interesting that in the lead up to the Supreme Court argument, there was hardly any publicity about it. Nobody particularly thought this is a great cause. We're gonna have demonstrations outside the court. Uh, we're gonna line up to go in and hear the argument. And uh, this was when the court was actually in the basement of the Capitol in the Senate chamber. And, and so Plessy was not an unusually uh, significant case in most people's opinion. When it got to the Supreme Court, what did they argue? Well, I want to do something that uh, I'm not sure has done a whole lot on your show, Paul, but I'm going to read from the Supreme Court brief that was filed by Plessy's lawyer, Albion Torgay, uh, to illustrate the argument that he made directed directly at the justices. And he said, suppose a member of this court, nay, suppose every member of it, should wake up tomorrow with black skin and curly hair, the two obvious and controlling indications of race. And in traveling through that portion of the country where the Jim Crow car abounds, should be ordered into it by the conductor. It is easy to imagine what would be the result, the indignation, the protest, the assertion of pure Caucasian ancestry. But the conductor, the autocrat of class, armed with the power of the state conferred by this statue, will listen neither to denial nor protest. You know, and I've read hundreds of Supreme Court briefs. I've never read anything quite like that. That's amazing. Yeah. They couldn't imagine themselves being black even for a day. And what would happen if particularly if they were in the deep south, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama. So there, there's there was a great not only a racial distinction, but a class distinction and a cultural distinction here. Now, the argument that the city made to the Supreme Court on behalf of Judge Ferguson was that it was customary in the south to separate the races. This was to the benefit of both races because if the races aren't mixed in these settings, whether it's sitting at a restaurant, in a movie theater, on a train, um, there won't be any conflict. But if they're mingled forcibly, as the state argued, there will be resentment and the possibility of consequences, including perhaps violence. Now, this is the kind of argument, what's called the heckler's veto. If I don't want you to speak or if I don't want you to be here, I'm going to make such a ruckus that you're not going to be able to speak or meet. 
They also argued that um, the 14th Amendment, which guarantees equal protection of the laws to all persons by every state, did not apply here because this was not a political issue. That is uh, voting, for example, or holding public office. It was simply a matter of public convenience and what, what's called the state's police powers. That is the power to regulate for the public health, safety, welfare, and morals. And this all came within, of course, those categories. And so that was the basic argument on both sides. Social scientist W.C. Fields once said, I am free of all prejudices. I hate everyone equally. More with Peter Irons when we come back. The Cat of the Week is David Fox Mulder Duchovny Nachem from Oakland, California. I am so happy to be back out on the road. I am vaccinated and fully boosted. I wear a mask until just before I hit the stage and I put it back on just after. And I want my audience to be masked and vaxxed. Do you know why? Because I never want to lose the opportunity to perform in front of a live audience again. It has been so much fun. I got no supply chain problems. I'm backed up with jokes. I'm the crazy Eddie of jokes. I got way too many. I'm practically giving them away. My flight was delayed the other day because I kept stepping behind the first class curtain saying, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Paula Poundstone and stepping through to tell jokes to the rest of the people in coach. Even when they duct taped me to the seat, I said, duct tape? Why would a duck have tape? Why not sloth staples? Well, I guess sloths would staple too slow and the staple wouldn't hold. Besides, sloths rolled office work. You gotta come see me in a theater, just so I can get my dignity back. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And we are back with Peter Irons. We've been talking about the the rich and somewhat shameful history of Plessy versus Ferguson. Somewhat, somewhat. Well, there, I, I liked I liked the argument from uh, Plessy's lawyer. That was fantastic. That was good, but I don't think, in the balance of things, it offsets. <laughs> All right. Um, so, Peter. What was the outcome in the Supreme Court? How quickly did they come back? What happened in the Supreme Court? Well, it's it's interesting that um, the Supreme Court decided the case fairly quickly. Um, they had so many cases to decide back then. The, they literally, um, you know, just scribbled a lot of them out. But in, in Plessy's case, I'm sure all your listeners are wondering, who won? Who won? How did it come out? Well, it was eight to one against Plessy which surprised no one. The only real surprise was the one who dissented. Yeah, who was that? Uh, Justice John Marshall Harlan. Justice Henry Billings Brown wrote the majority decision 
It's probably the worst opinion he ever wrote. Well, he actually didn't write very many, but he was basically a, a maritime lawyer. He represented shipping interests in the Great Lakes before he went to the court. He knew nothing and cared nothing, I think, for the feelings of people who weren't white like him. So I'm going to read a little bit. Justice Brown says, we consider the underlying fallacy of the plaintiff's argument to consist in the assumption that the enforced separation of the two races stamps the colored race with a badge of inferiority. If this be so, it is not by reason of anything found in the act, but solely because the colored race chooses to put that construction upon it. Oh. That's about the most condescending thing you can think to say it's their own fault if they feel discriminated against because that's not what we intended and how many years later were we still messing around with that idea um well it was 58 years after plessy was decided when the supreme court decided brown versus board of education and interestingly the same arguments were made by the southern states and their lawyers over and over again. This puts white people in an uncomfortable position if they are forced to uh, congregate or, or have any close dealings with black people. And as a matter of fact, in the majority opinion, the Supreme Court ruled that there is a distinction between races which must always exist so long as white men are distinguished from the other race by color. Well, that's, that's a sort of a dichotomous thing. You're either white or you're black. And as any geneticist will tell you, there's no real distinction between races. It's a socially constructed idea in the first place. And there are many variations, as Plessy himself showed, by looking to most people's eyes, white, while he, in fact, was a majority black person, about two-thirds, in fact. Oh. Getting back to Justice Harlan's dissent, I think that the phrase that he's most noted for is the sentence that says, our constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. Now that's that's a famous quote. As, and a matter of fact, it's probably the most quoted sentence from a Supreme Court opinion in later opinions. And in fact, justices very recently, Clarence Thomas, for example, Justice Scalia, when he was on the court, used that sentence all the time to justify discrimination by saying our Constitution is colorblind. So we can't give advantages to either race, let alone the race that has suffered for discrimination since the days of slavery. But the interesting thing about Harlan's opinion, and I want to preface this by saying that he was, in fact, a Southerner from Kentucky his family owned slaves. Now he's fought for the Union. He organized a brigade in the Union Army during the war, but he was not an advocate of racial integration. He just thought in this particular case that it was so obvious that there's nothing to be afraid of by having people sit together on a railroad coach. But before that colorblind sentence, here's what Harlan had to say. The white race deems itself to be the dominant race in this country. And so it is in prestige, in achievements, in education, in wealth and power. So I doubt not, it will continue to be for all time 
if it remains true to its great heritage and holds fast to the principles of constitutional liberty. Now, you might say, wait a minute, that's that's all white uh, supremacy argument. But what Harlan was doing was that was the status of race relations back then. The white race did deem itself to be dominant. And in fact, it was in all the ways that really matter. And so the the Plessy decision didn't disturb really anybody outside of the black people who were subject to it because it was the comfort of the white people that was more important than any right enjoyed by a black person. Peter, what's the point of a written dissent? Well, the dissents sometimes become the law later on when a dissent is uh, in a case that is later overruled and largely because the argument in the dissent became persuasive to a majority of the justices. And there have been some famous dissenters, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., for example, Justice Louis Brandeis, the first Jewish justice. Harlan is sometimes known as the great dissenter, but this was really the only significant dissent that Harlan made. There's one other aspect, if I could add this to it, which is that there there's a case which shows that Harlan, in fact, was subject to the kinds of prejudices, not racial prejudices, but class prejudices um, that were put into law. The, the Congress had passed a law that prohibited employers from paying the travel of people they recruited to come work in the United States. And these were mostly unskilled workers from places like Ireland and Italy and Poland and Russia. Um, and they came over here with their, their transportation paid for by the employer. And Congress said, we can't allow that anymore. And then a church in New York City, the Church of the Holy Trinity, hired a priest from England to come over into their church. And the immigration people said, no, he's covered by this law. It was appealed to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court struck down the law, but it did so in a way, and Harlan joined the opinion in which they expressed their opinion of these unskilled, cheap labor. They said, they are ignorant of our social condition. They are generally from the lowest social stratum and live upon the coarsest food and in hovels of a character before unknown to American workmen. They are, as a rule, do not become citizens and are certainly not a desirable acquisition to the body politic. The inevitable tendency of their presence among us is to degrade American labor and to reduce it to the level of the imported pauper labor. Now, that was also a very common attitude among the elite class, uh, in fact, most classes in this country, the so-called native-born, true 100% Americans who were very anti-immigrant and anti-Asian. It was the precursor to rapists and drug dealers. You know, the Trump speech when he came down on the escalator. That's right. <laughs> but at any rate, this was the attitude of the Supreme Court back then, and it was joined by Justice Harlan. So rather than make him a, a sort of civil rights hero, you should understand that he really did have a principled objection to this particular law, which he thought was unfair and unnecessary and, and degrading to blacks. The stigma of inferiority is the phrase that uh, Albion Torgay had used 
to the court. But Harlan was a man of his time. And there were very few people who would unequivocally be considered anti-racist or non-racist at that time among the white population. There were people who sympathized with blacks and did a lot to improve their quality of life and their enjoyment of what the rest of us take for granted. But they were a very small minority back then. Now, what happened with the case? When I asked you about the dissent and they said, well, sometimes that later becomes law. So the same issue gets revisited in the Supreme Court and can be changed? No, what happened in the Plessy case was that um, after the Supreme Court decision, it went back to Judge Ferguson and Plessy appeared in court and uh, was found guilty again and paid the $25 fine. And the interesting thing is that Plessy then sort of disappeared into obscurity. One interesting factoid about the case is that the decision of the Supreme Court was one of 17 the court issued that very day. Three of those cases dealing with antitrust law and something else wound up on the front page of the New York Times. But the Plessy case wound up in the back of the paper in a column on railroad news, cases about railroad rates and and things like that. Nobody paid any attention the decision. But and that and that case ended up being a precedent that was cited again and again and again until it was overturned. Is that right? Yes, it was. And the, the odd thing is that Plessy became a precedent for a whole number of cases that had nothing to do with railroad travel, but segregation in general. And it was cited to uphold laws, particularly those imposing school segregation. And it wasn't until the Supreme Court decided Brown versus Board of Education that Plessy was directly addressed by the court. And interestingly, the court in Earl Warren's majority, well, unanimous decision, did not overrule Plessy specifically. It simply said that case deals with railroad travel and has nothing to do with schools. So you might argue that Plessy was never overruled, but everybody knows that, in fact, what you call de facto, it's dead. Peter, as I listen to your book, The People's History of the Supreme Court, and obviously it doesn't go over every single Supreme Court case. Uh, You know, there's technical things and stuff that we never hear about at all that did get decided in the Supreme Court. But it struck me as I listened to the book, like I always had sort of revered the Supreme Court, but you listen to the book and I'm like, boy, they got it wrong a lot. What do you think the percentage is? (laughs) What's the Supreme Court's batting average? Well, it depends on on what season you're talking about. Um, (laughs) You know, like uh, I'm a Boston Red Sox fan, and uh, we used to say, wait until next year. Of course, the Cubby fans could say that for a lot longer, like a whole century. But the Supreme Court batting average uh, is, is hard to compute because it depends on who's calling the balls and strikes. There are decisions of the Supreme Court now that I think are horrible, and a majority of the public apparently agrees with me, like the recent Dobbs decision striking down Roe versus Wade. But if you go back in history, the court follows the public opinion on major issues, but usually there's a gap of uh, considerable time, sometimes years or decades, before the court catches up to the public. That was quite true, for example, during the New Deal administration of Franklin Roosevelt, when the Supreme Court, the so-called nine old men, were striking down all the New Deal laws that were designed to help people uh, who were suffering 
uh, loss of jobs, homes, all, all that they owned. But the public rose up and said, no, um, you know, we, we disagree with this. And we elected a Congress, overwhelmingly Democratic Congress, that uh, was going to try to revive these laws. But what happened was President Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, said, well, the only way I can deal with this is to increase the size of the Supreme Court up to a maximum of 15, a sort of complicated process. But at any rate, the so-called court packing. Now, Roosevelt's bill never became law, but the court, in fact, got the message. Justices started resigning. Um, <laughs> Roosevelt replaced them with solid New Deal Democrats who were judges, just the way Trump has replaced the retiring and deceased justices with solid, hardcore Republicans. It's nothing surprising. That's what most presidents do. Why do you think the Supreme Court is so far behind? Well, I think they're so far behind because the um, the way we had this incredible disruption of our entire national life for four years under, uh, oh, what's his name? Trump. <laughs> yeah. Um, number 45 or the orange guy. But at any rate, uh, to be serious for a moment, this had been planned for decades, really, to mm -hmm. use every opportunity to change the composition of the Supreme Court. And it worked uh, perfectly, particularly with the refusal to even give a hearing to Merrick Garland to join the court. And the unfortunate fact that uh, Justice uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died before the inauguration of President Biden. But it's always been behind. So we live with decisions that aren't good for us. Well, I, I'm going to disagree because it hasn't always been behind. The era of the Warren Court, Earl Warren as Chief Justice, which lasted from about 1954 to 1964 or five, when the solid majority of the court was liberal, and they were ahead of the public on a lot of issues, particularly, for example, Miranda versus Arizona, the right against self-incrimination mm -hmm. and the Gideon case that gave a right to a lawyer, to indigent defendants. Um, we're all ahead of public opinion, very law and order back at that time. And the idea that uh, these obvious criminals, everybody knew that Gideon was guilty. Uh, so why give him uh, a second chance and a right to say, no, I don't have to testify against myself. I stand corrected. But overall, <laughs> in the long history of the court, uh, it seems to me that they've been behind a lot. I'll give you that one, Paula, because in the long history, the court has been behind what we might call informed progressive public opinion uh, during all of its tenure. The Warren Court was really the only exception to that for about a decade. So we're talking about 200 years of conservative Supreme Court decisions. The 19th century, for example, the second half of the 19th century, the Supreme Court was remarkably reactionary, pro-business, anti-labor, anti-immigrant, anti-minorities. Uh, they upheld the Chinese Exclusion Act. They ruled uh, totally against the Constitution that a corporation, which is totally fictitious, of course, corporation is just a piece of paper, is a person with rights under the Constitution. And therefore, employers have a liberty right to decide what they're going to pay their employees, regardless of anybody's 
legislative decision, the court struck down laws about child labor, women's rights. And so the court, in, in fact, today, being extremely conservative, is not that far different from the court uh, of the past. Peter, I'm going to throw you a very, very uh, easy question right now. Would you say that some of the issues that we were discussing today, uh, people could learn more about in a book entitled White Men's Law, The Roots of Systemic Racism? <laughs> oh, I think that's a great idea. <laughs> um, as a matter of fact, Paula was referring to my book, A People's History of the Supreme Court, which sure. covers the whole history of the court. But I've written another book, which came out just uh, last fall from Oxford University Press, called uh, White Men's Law, The Roots of Systemic Racism. Now, this is, to be totally honest, a contribution of critical race theory. Because what I did in this book is going all the way back to the days of slavery, 1619 uh, and after, is to show how white men have shaped the law in ways that benefited white people and uh, degraded all kinds of minorities, including women, uh, racial minorities, religious minorities, political minorities, and that those discriminations, the Jim Crow laws, for example, the law and order laws of the 1980s and 90s during the war on drugs, they have all turned into a repressive regime that we are still dealing with. For example, the fact that American schools are more segregated today than they were in 1954, and that in most big cities, for example, in Detroit, one of the subjects of my white men's law book, 90% of the students in the public schools are black, and they wind up worse in the nationwide measures and tests of general knowledge and math and English, for example. And there's a direct correlation between that, because their schools are starved. And the schools in the mostly white and sometimes all white suburbs uh, are spending two, three times as much per year on their students. So there's still this great disparity and housing disparity, income disparity, wealth disparity. And these are all rooted, as I argue in this book, rooted in the laws that white men have passed ever since the first slaves arrived on our shores. Wow. And right now... Ron DeSantis is in a U-Haul truck driving around to bookstores and libraries, removing this book from the shelves. <laughs> one by one copy at a time. But you can still get it. Once again, everybody, the name of that book is White Men's Law, The Roots of Systemic Racism by Peter Irons. Now, Peter, that was excellent. And what we're going to do right now is run all the information you've given us today through something we call the old Pounce-denator. Paula? Thanks so much to house band Jay Clannon on the fuglehorn and trumpet. Thanks for flugeling, which one almost never gets to say. You sound great. If I could get some background, I'll tell you what the old pounce-denator spit out. Peter Irons, political science professor emeritus at UC San Diego, political activist and civil rights attorney. Thank you so much. This was so informative. I wish I could remember who to credit for saying on Twitter that women had just been stripped of a fundamental right because of how a handful of people in robes interpreted some papers written by some slave-owning white guys who would have been freaked out by a light bulb. Given that there is an amendment process for the Constitution, the framers must have anticipated that once tested on the open seas, we might find some holes that would need patched. 
and that we would simply outgrow some of the popular notions among Americans living in that sweaty hot summer when the Constitution was written. Even so, 58 years after Plessy versus Ferguson, separate but equal, was still in place. Still the argument for keeping people down. There's something wrong, something about the construct. The Supreme Court had some good years, but it was formed in 1790. We, we've had 17 chief justices, and Peter Irons, one of the foremost experts on the Supreme Court, can point to one who brought his team to a winning season, to continue the boys' metaphor. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that even as we've grown up as a nation, we're kind of saddled with a Supreme Court that doesn't respect our age. It's like we're in high school and we have a substitute who makes us do phonics and sing the itsy bitsy spider. Except it's worse, because these are lives that we've wasted. Unnecessary torment inflicted on our brothers and sisters in a world that would, because it's made up of humans, provide enough struggle and challenge for every one of us without our intentionally stacking the deck against any one of us. Supreme Court decisions affect the future of our world. When one refers to Plessy, one refers to a shameful stain on our history. We don't have to writhe in the guilt of it forever, but let's not repeat it. Let's teach it. Let's remember it. Let's outgrow it. I know almost nothing of my genealogy other than that I come from pot-bellied people. And, and I don't much care about it, but I'd be lucky if I had some drops of black blood somewhere in me. The blood of a people with such a history that even teaching it scares the shit out of some white people. The blood of a people that have fought through systematic racism condoned by our Supreme Court and Plessy versus Ferguson to produce people like Katanji Brown-Jackson, John Lewis, Shirley Chisholm, Sidney Portier, the Reverend James Lawson, Diane Nash, Bree Newsom, Marvin Gaye, Thurgood Marshall, Sherilyn Eiffel, and my high school friend Charmin Brown, who I wish I could find. Check to make sure you are still registered to vote. There are some places where the Republicans are messing with the voting rolls. And then vote. Vote blue. Vote hard. Author, activist, legal scholar, and political science professor of the University of California, San Diego. That was Peter Irons, everybody. Peter, thank you so much Yay! for bringing some truth to our show. Thank you, guys. I had a great time, and uh, it's always a pleasure to be with you. Oh, thank you so much. Peter, will you come back sometime and explain Korematsu? The problem is that I can't talk about the Korematsu case for less than three hours. We would love that. <laughs> Excellent. We will have that happen. Peter, thanks so much. It was great to have you. I really appreciate it. And uh, we will be back right after this. Learning to talk to Trump. Talking to former President Trump can be difficult, but by practicing these suggested phrases in front of a mirror for just a few minutes a day, you'll be saying what you need to say to him with confidence in no time. Get a pen and a paper and write them down. Today's phrase is, you spit that paper out. 
Fun fact, the entire population of Central Europe during the Stone Age could have fit on a cruise ship, which explains all the cave paintings depicting shuffleboard. <laughs> We're back. Thank you, Jay Clannon. That is sounding fantastic. Well, now, Paula. Yay! Uh, Thank you, Jay. Let's hear it for you. Paula, I, I know you know already, but let me tell our audience. Uh, we ran a little bit long with, um, with with Peter Irons, as we, you know, I think justly so as well, with good reason. It's a, it's a historic Supreme Court decision, and it deserves our time. I completely agree. However, the bad news is your recognition for your musical prowess is going to have to wait until next week when we do Mailbag! Glockenspiel edition. So, yeah, you can rest that until next week, Paula. We're, we're not doing it. We're, in fact, not So we're, do, so do, we're not doing it. We're not doing what, Adam? We're not doing what? We're not doing Mailbag! Glockenspiel edition. Oh boy, I just can't wait for next week. Hey everybody, so if I have there's to, a subject. So I have to wait for people to compliment my uh my Glockenspiel work? Yes. Yes, you have to wait. That famous case Glockenspiel versus nobody's will be delayed. <laughs> I think of it as the case of Poundstone versus music, but, uh, you know, teach his own. <laughs> hey, and hey, everybody, if there's a subject or topic you want to know about, let us know at nobody listens to Paula Poundstone at gmail.com. And Paula Poundstone, what is going on with your Poundstone product empire this week? Oh, so much, Adam. As you know, Poundstone Industries, also known as Lipstick Nancy Incorporated, is a small company with big dreams. So I've been working with the top-notch publicist, Cynthia Cryer, Public Relations. Cynthia herself has given our account so much personal attention. I almost feel bad for Brad Pitt, who she says she would never work with. She has taught me so many techniques for promoting my theater performances and products. Cynthia says that people love it when you know a lot about their city. It makes them feel like you've chosen them as, as opposed to the truth, which is that I'm generally only in any given city for one night and I rarely see anything that's not on the way to the airport. Here's an example. On Friday, September 9th, I'm going to be in Roanoke, Virginia at the Jefferson Center. So I looked up the event calendar on the Roanoke, Virginia website so I can be in the know like this. On Friday, September 9th, I'll be in Roanoke, Virginia at the Jefferson Center just in time for B-Week bulk slash brush collection. Buy tickets, buy tickets at paulapoundstone.com. See, you have to just sound familiar with the place. Cynthia says tickets will be flying off the shelf. On Thursday, September 22nd, I'll be in Ridgefield, Connecticut at the Ridgefield Playhouse. So I say, on Thursday, September 22nd, I'll be in Ridgefield, Connecticut at the Ridgefield Playhouse. I can't wait to see the, the ridges and, and the fields again. Buy tickets, buy tickets at paulapoundstone.com. Drive careful, don't get stuck in the ridges. Or the field. See, it makes them feel like I'm one of their own. 
On Saturday, September 24th, I'll be in Concord, New Hampshire at the Capitol Center for the Arts. So I say, on Saturday, September 24th, I'll be in historic Concord, New Hampshire, the site of the Revolutionary War battle for patriots who didn't listen carefully at the Capitol Center for the Arts. Buy tickets, buy tickets at paulapoundstone.com. Listeners can also find Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone hooded sweatshirts at the shop at paulapoundstone.com. And if your plants are looking a little sad, you can cheer them up with worm waste from the funniest farm in the world. I'll sell you a pound of worm castings for $4 a pound plus shipping. Email us at paula at paulapoundstone.com with your order. You can also order the How the Heck Does She Does It package, where for $30 plus shipping, I send you a pound of worm castings, a personalized video showing you some part of my worm farming process, and I introduce you to the worm that I've named after you. It's weird and wonderful. That's why. Email your order to paula at paulapoundstone.com. There's more at my website, paulapoundstone.com. But I don't have time to tell you because Heidi is clocking me. How much time in the promo section do we have left, Paula? Um, not enough time to mention your other podcast, Dad Bandland. Not, not nearly enough. There's really? no time for that. I, I really wish nope. that because it's been heating up lately. We're getting more and more listeners. I'd love to just say something about it. Mm, nope, no time. Sorry. That's a pity because it's been really funny lately. All right. Oh, well, <laughs> let's just move on. It has. <laughs> it has been. It's been a really fun podcast filled with music. Hey, Paula, this is the thing that we do have time for. It's the moment we've all been waiting for. Paula Poundstone, your task was to use this week's word, asperity, somewhere in a sentence in this show. If you succeeded, we will be treated to a little bit of the amazing share, and you'll get to mail her a check for $1. But if you haven't, we'll hear from our own resident psychic, Cher Eva. So let's ask the big question. Did Paula Poundstone <laughs> use this week's vocabulary word correctly during today's show? I knew it. I knew it. Oh, Damn it. I knew it. I knew it. That was Cher oh. Eva, of course, and Paula. <laughs> you failed once again to, uh, to remember to use the word that you brought into the show in the show. Damn it. You know what? That makes me speak with asperity. Yeah, it's too late. All right, remember to follow this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. It's free. And if there's a subject or topic you want to know about, let us know at nobody listens to Paula Poundstone at gmail.com. That's our show. Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone is hosted by Paula Poundstone and yours truly, Adam the Felber. Special thanks to our guest, Peter Irons. <laughs> and to our house band, returning champion, Jay Clannon. Our show is produced by Paula Poundstone, Adam Felber, Bonnie Burns, Ken Lezevnik, and Julie Berkobian. Edited by Vic Lowry. Starburns production by Land Romo. Transcription services for the show provided by Transcribe Me, a premier internationally used transcription service. Use code Paula Poundstone when placing your orders at transcribeme.com to receive an expedited service. That's our show for tonight. Won't somebody please listen to me? Starburns, a, podca <clears throat> a podcast network.